Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Football Insider's podcast show, The Inside Track. I'm your host, Lewis Pears, and with me today, I'm joined by Football Insider editor Wayne Veazey and our very special guest, the former England and Tottenham goalkeeper, Paul Robinson. In today's show, we discuss the huge changes taking place at Manchester United with Sir Jim Ratcliffe's deal set to be announced at the start of next week and what this means for the future of manager Eric Ten Hag, the star players, as well as the January transfer window. We discuss the timing of the leak about Ten Hag reportedly losing half of the dressing room, who is the top target to replace Ten Hag and who will be making the footballing decisions at United. United, with a new director of football expected to be appointed soon. We'll also have huge news on the Premier League manager's sack race, with Nottingham Forest and a surprise London club both potentially changing their manager soon. Our source tells us one Premier League manager has told friends he expects to be sacked imminently. The merry-go-round is very much underway, and there really is some surprise news in this section. We'll also discuss what is shaping up to be a mouth-watering Premier League title race, following some surprise midweek results, as well as what the record-breaking Premier League broadcasting deal means for clubs and players, as well as the clubs further down the pyramid, of course. Could we soon see the first £1 million a week Premier League player? Before we jump in, I'd really appreciate it if you hit the follow button on your preferred podcast platform. And if you like what you hear, make sure to give our pod a top review and rating. This enables us to produce the very best possible show. Let's get straight into the episode. So, Wayne, to start with, it's worth talking about Manchester United. Is there any update, please, on Sir Jim Ratcliffe's stake sale? Sounds like there could be a potential uh, a potential breakthrough. Yes, the, the deal has been close to being done for many, many weeks now. Um, my understanding is that it is literally almost done and it will be announced early next week that he has a 25% share of Man United um, and will take control of football operations straight away. So it's absolutely monumental for Man United. It changes lots of things on the football side and it could and is likely to herald sweeping changes behind the scenes. What do you think it means for then for the immediate future of the club? If we look at it objectively for the next six months until the end of the season, what changes could potentially happen in that time? Um, well, there's already going to be a new chief executive coming in because Richard Arnold's um, departure was announced recently. Um, my understanding is there will be a new director of football coming in. They've been um, discreetly behind the scenes sounding out potential candidates for that role. There's a few top targets, one of whom is already at a Premier League club, Doug, Dougie Friedman. Um, he is very much top target. He's sporting director at Crystal Palace and has um, extensive Premier League experience. Paul Mitchell's another one who's been mentioned. The, the Monaco director of football was previously at Tottenham. My understanding is that he is not um, a top contender at this stage. And Dougie Friedman, who is um, also Alex Ferguson, Alex Ferguson's neighbour, interestingly enough, um, he is um, currently most likely to get that role. John Mert is the current uh, Football director, I think the, the title is, or the titles do change at different clubs. Um, I'm told he is almost certain to leave soon after the Ratcliffe um, takeover or part takeover goes through. I mean, Paul, I wanted to touch on talking about Old Trafford. You, of course, were there yesterday at the game for Manchester United against Chelsea. Sounds like Ratcliffe's prepared to spend quite a decent amount of money, just shy of a quarter of a billion pounds to improve the club's infrastructure. But of course, Old Trafford at the moment, as everyone keeps joking, is certainly not in a good state. What did you make of the ground when you went to it yesterday? 
well, do you know, I, I was working for Five Live and I sat with Ian Dennis and I said, we sat there and looked at the stadium and I went, do you know what, all the reports and everything, the, the press lounge, they've, they've spent money on the press lounge, they've spent money behind the scenes. And the stadium, when you sat in the stadium, it, it's a fantastic arena. It's one of the best arenas that we've got in this country. When you go into the bones of the structure of the skeleton of the stadium, there's, there's obviously an issue because it's so old. But actually, when you sit there and you look, when you look at the, the, the arena you're in and you go to watch a football match, it's incredible. And I said that to Ian and he turned to me and he went, yeah, but if it rains, it leaks on as we get wet here. So and that just gives you a little bit of a, an idea as, as to what state it's in. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all good from the outside. But the media lounge, they, they've, they've done all that. And interesting enough, picking up on Wayne's point with this, the, the new, the temporary CEO, if you like, Patrick Stewart, he was in the media lounge last night before the game. They were on a real charm offensive, Manchester United, before the game. Because as we know, they've banned some media outlets from press conferences, from some um, the manager's press conferences this week. The new CEO was walking around and he was introducing himself and talking to the media that were present before the game last night, which I found very interesting. So one thing you weren't expecting to pack then to Old Trafford yesterday was your umbrella. That's that's the one that's the one piece of clothing or an item that you weren't you weren't expecting to take. Talking of, I mean, the media outlets generally, if we just focus on that, you know, in, in the build up to the game, of course, as you mentioned, Paul, that four media outlets, including Sky, were banned from the press conference. Wayne, what did you make of that generally from the club, claiming that actually they they didn't ha have enough time to sort of defend the claims that were being made? Do you think that's a bit ridiculous? Um, I think there's quite a few elements to this story. I think it's clearly because there's four outlets running the same information at the same time. Um, it doesn't need the deduction qualities of Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple to work out that that's the same source or likely same sources um, going to that organization and whether what is interesting for me is um not whether it's true or not because clearly ten Hag has issues managing his players um in our written stories over the last few months that you know, he's fallen out with players and that the dressing room has not been impressed how he how he handles them and his man management methods are very much um you know questioned by the players so I, I have no doubt about the veracity of the information it's interesting though in terms of where has the information come from and the timing of it and the big sort of thing that stands out is this takeover is about to go through will be announced in a few days and suddenly there's um some very very negative media about the manager which seems to be preparing the way um for a potential change of manager that that is my take on it um i think it's clearly come from the same source to all the outlets and you know questioning ten Hag to a level where he's had to sit there and start his press conference and defend himself which isn't very pleasant for any manager um obviously manager man united you're always going to be under immense scrutiny um but i think it's it's preparing way for a potential change of manager that's my take on it well, i think it's interesting because ten Hag said in that press conference when what you just said then when he immediately finds himself defending himself to the owners and i use words like they have to trust in me they have to trust in the process they have to trust in the project we're doing this we're doing that and he's almost trying to send a message indirectly through what he's saying in the press to the new ownership to the new mm -hmm. infrastructure what's going to be coming in above him yeah and oh sorry so yeah and you know, the obviously Man United's results have been um, very iffy this season. They've only been able to beat the bottom 10 Premier League clubs. I mean, Chelsea, I think, are 10th on the table. They beat them last night, which is a great, 
great win, obviously. Um, but none, nonetheless, our massive question marks. Champions League form has been really, really poor, knocked out of the League Cup as well. And they seem to have gone backwards this season. And I mean, I was told a few weeks ago that it was almost certain that um, Sir Jim Ratcliffe and the new regime would look to change the manager and that Roberto De Zerbi Brighton was a top target. Um, De Zerbi could still, nonetheless, agree a new Brighton contract. He could use that interest from Man United to get improved terms at Brighton and potentially stay and see out the season at Brighton and then have his pick of the clubs at the end of the season. I mean, he said, you know, one thing, Paul, you just touched on, I think was really interesting was one of the other things he mentioned was that he had to reset the standards when he, you know, were coming into the club because things weren't right. But actually, arguably, things haven't been right since Sir Alex Ferguson left. So, you know, you've got a decade's worth of issues that are going on. You know, how do they actually stop this rot to go forwards? Because it just seems that Ten Hag is in a lose-lose situation at the moment. Well, listen, it's everybody harps on about the Sir Alex Ferguson era and it hasn't been right since then. I mean, what's it's been 10 years since they won a title. I mean, last year they finished third, they won a League Cup and that was the first trophy in six years. And I think we all kind of sniggered a little bit at Ralph Ragnick. We all looked at that appointment and we were surprised by that appointment. But something he said when he left was was quite telling and it lingers, that the club needs open heart surgery is how he put it. And that's, you know, when you look at it like that, you, you we open this conversation about the, the stadium, the infrastructure, the, the structure of the board, the team, everything at Manchester United is underperforming. And the more you think about it, the more you link it back to that statement. Everything at the Manchester United is not functioning how it should be. And we look how many years ago Sir Alex Ferguson was there. And it was. And we're all guilty of comparing it to that because that's our generation, if you like. And you always compare and you always expect success from Manchester United, who are one of, if not the biggest clubs in the world. Eric Ten Hag's got a huge job on his hands. Whether he's the right man to, to do that or not, it's still to be proven. I personally, I don't see it. I think there's too many noises coming out of the dressing room. I think there's too much unrest at the club. There's too many players that are making noises as to his training methods. They're talking and saying that we're running too far, that the training's old school, we're not happy with this. But how often does the tail wag the dog at Manchester United? Is that another manager that the players are going to get rid of? Is it the players that are, that are at fault? There is far too many issues at Manchester United that need resolving. And Jim Ratcliffe, as, as a minority shareholder, is going to have the strongest voice in football for a minority shareholder, that's for sure. Absolutely. I mean, Paul, you were there last night, of course, at Old Trafford with Five Live, like you said. What was the atmosphere like pre-game? Because, I mean, obviously afterwards, great win, fans are ecstatic. But actually going into it, what was the general feeling of the place like? There was a good atmosphere around the place. I was surprised because when we previewed the game, you, you, you sit there and you look at the two teams, both very, very unpredictable, both, both Jekyll and Hyde. And Manchester United, how poor they were at Newcastle last week. I think a lot of fans, they weren't sure what to expect. And I think the expectancy of going turning up to Old Trafford and winning, I mean, I mean that's gone. I'm looking at the, the, the results that they've had. I mean, they've lost three of six at home this season. And that fortress of Old Trafford is gone. So the fans now turn up, I think, with a, the expectancy, but not the same level of expectancy they previously had. But listen, they were good last night. It's the best Manchester United performance that I've seen. And especially, I said last night, that the best Manchester United performance I've seen when they haven't got the ball. They set traps, they sprung, they worked hard. And to a man from Hoyland, he, he didn't get that many chances in front of the goal. Strikers are judged on goals, but he was good off the ball. He started the press. Anthony, Garnaccio, Fernandes, McTominay, they were all extremely good. And listen, we always talk about it. The minimum requirement is maximum effort. And we haven't seen that from Manchester United, and especially at Newcastle. And last night, it seemed to have hurt the players, the press, the media. The message seemed to have got through. And it's a one-off. One swallow doesn't make a summer. 
but that didn't look like a performance of a team that the manager had lost the dressing room. But what happens going forward? You know, we've spoken about the fact that four media outlets have been banned on the weekend and, and for the foreseeable future. Do you think the club are going to continue this ban or is this potentially just a one-off, Wayne? How do you see that progressing? I mean, they haven't said how long the ban is for, have they? Um, I think we, we, you're talking about a broadcast partner in Sky Sports, the, um, the regional newspaper, Manchester News, um, tabloid newspaper and a, and a website, I think it was ES, ESPN FC. Yeah, I mean, the... the they they have major issues, obviously, with the club, and that could take some time to sort that out. And I think, especially important for Sky, because they want that access and they want to be able to um, speak to the manager and speak to the players. That's that, that's very important. They pay royally for that access as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at we're going to talk about the new TV deal in a bit, and that's you know paying paying monumental amounts for that access I think that will have to be sorted out in terms of how the journalists got the information or whether they put that information to the club I mean that's completely on them and that's for that that's that's for them to defend that they will know their reasons for that I'm sure they have very good reasons because I know how Sky work and I know how diligent they are with their sourcing so there is there's no doubt that information would have been well sourced um, and Man United don't like it because it's true yeah, that's the, that's the problem, isn't it? Because if they're writing information that wasn't true, telling stories about information that wasn't true, then the club wouldn't care. I mean, my experience is clubs throw their weight around, and media officers and press officers throw their weight around when they don't like true information that's negative and it's in the public domain, and that's that's what's happened here. And how, how long that ban will last for, I don't know. It's up to them, but um, it's very very interesting. It's very interesting from you know a, another media outlet looking at it, and also in terms of the ramifications for the club for the manager um, and for all those players because the performances have been abject this season. I think all these late goals have particularly glossed over some appalling performances. Um, very interesting that Paul says it's much better last night. And that, that, that is sort of very, very important. But it's just one match, isn't it? I mean, how many bad games do Liverpool play? How many bad games do Arsenal play? Man City, not many. The, the results might not always be great, but their level doesn't actually drop that often. Man United, most times I look, look at them, they're pretty boring to watch. That has to change. Do you think Ratcliffe will be concerned about this and in a different world, actually? Do you think he might not have invested? Because it seems to be that what we've discussed here overall, there are lots and lots of problems on and off field that he's going to have to try and work through over the next, you know, his foreseeable future, however long that lasts. One of my friends who supports Nice has actually said that he is quite worried because he actually doesn't want Nice to become a puppet club to Manchester United and all the focus just to turn on them. Because, I mean, realistically... That surely is the priority now for him. Manchester United is going to have to be the, the club that he focuses on with all the issues that are going on. Well, a Nice fan is a friend. That's a, that's a, a Nice market, if you like. Friends. Oh, Lewis, Lewis has got friends all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> University <laughs> friend, there you go. <laughs> the thing that you, you, you're missing with Jim Ratcliffe, it's his club. He is a Manchester United fan. He's an extremely wealthy businessman and is very, very successful in his own right. And he has invested in some very, very successful business deals, which has put him where he is today. This is his football club. And he's probably looked from the outside looking in for a long, long time and probably wanted a piece of it, probably wanted to be involved for a long, long time and hasn't had the ability to do that for whatever reason, whether it was the people in charge or it was a closed shop, whatever it was. Now he's got the opportunity. And as a Manchester United fan, as a Manchester United person, He's got the opportunity to be there and to make those decisions and to put this football club right. And I think that's a big thing. I don't think Sir Jim Ratcliffe is going into this. In fact, I'm almost certain he isn't for, to make money out of it. 
to make a huge business deal. You look at the Glazers, you look at the way they finance the club, you look at the money they've taken out of the club. Jim Ratcliffe's coming into this club to make footballing decisions. And the big stipulation that he wanted to do was have full control of football issues, which tells you a lot about his aims and ambitions for the club. It's quite interesting, though. I mean, this this is the mother of all deals for the Glazers, I have to say, because, you know, they've sold a quarter of the club, they retain 75% of it, and they don't get all the scrutiny of the football decisions. So when the team's performing not that well, they can turn around and say, well, you know, Jim Ratcliffe makes the decisions now. We just we just silent in the background, quite happily making more money from the club and just going to the value while the value of the club continues to rise. So I think it's an incredible deal for the Glazers. Um, whatever you think about them, obviously um, astute businessmen. You know they're dealing with a, um, a richest man in Britain here, and they've they've pulled off a great deal for themselves. So um, good luck to them. But you know I don't think. That my United fans will be queuing up and complaining at them. In the few, from now on, they're going to have to go. Well, Jim Ratcliffe brought in that manager. He brought in the direct football. He's the one that sanctioned the players, the seventy million signing, the exit of the big name player. It's all on him now, and um, that's a different, different microscope altogether. But what defines any successful season for United? If we're saying that actually, you know, Sir Jim Ratcliffe is coming into this, he doesn't want to make a profit, he just wants to solely focus on the football. How what 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 defines a good season for them under Eric Ten Hag? Because I mean, currently, I'm not sure there's a lot that you can pull on really this season. Well, if you look at where they are on the pitch, I think every single United fan to 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 a person would say a successful season was getting rid of the Glazers out of the football club. They would love Sir Jim Ratcliffe to have full control of the football club. And until the Glazers have gone and gone completely, there's, there's never going to be full harmony across the board at Manchester United. On the pitch, you look at where they finished last year. They finished third last year, first trophy in six years. And you expected them to kick on because they did look a different animal under Ten Hag last year. And I, for one, at the beginning of the season, I looked at them, I looked at the squad and thought, yeah, you know, they could be top four contenders. I think their results in the Champions League, what Wayne touched on earlier, have been really disappointing. The performances, more so than anything else in the Premier League, mm. they've struggled at home at Old Trafford against the likes of Luton. Uh, we've seen teams go there and, and upset them. But I mean, mm. they're, they're sixth. I mean, they're three points off the top four. So, yes, we are talking about Manchester United. Yes, we are talking about a team, a club that are in disarray at the moment. But four, uh, three points off the top four and their form has actually been OK. They've beaten Chelsea. OK, they lost at Newcastle. But the way they lost at Newcastle is what we all talk about. They won at Everton. They won 3-0. It wasn't a 3-0 game. Everton didn't deserve to lose 3-0. United certainly didn't need, deserve to win 3-0. They beat Luton at home. Performances, personnel, media outlets, leaks, everything else we talk about about Manchester United. But they've actually been ticking along in the Premier League, picking up points. So third place last year, you did expect them to kick on. But they're only three points off the top four. You know, it's an interesting point you make about the results that are OK. I wouldn't argue with that. I think the results are you know, not awful, but the performances are. There's a big, big difference there. Tottenham, you've got similar points to Man United, but Tottenham, you can see the progression. They're cavalier, they're exciting, they're brilliant to watch. And, you know, against Man City last Sunday, um, that was a spellbinding match. And the the matches Man United played and just haven't been like that. I think the Everton result flattered them. And you say last night, Man United were not much better. I've only seen the highlights, but, um, you know, I could take your word for, for that, but previously the performances have been pretty dire and the Champions League, the, it's not a strong group at all. Um, you'd have expected to comfortably qualify and reach the knockout stages. That's not going to happen. It was very unlikely to happen. 
So, you know, Man United have massively underperformed, I would say, this season, and there has been zero progression from last season. They've gone backwards. They do still have a strong squad, um, but there's massive question marks over whether this manager is the right person to take the team forward. Well, Talking of, you, would, you say, would you say Harry Maguire and Johnny Evans, a Manchester United centre-half partnership, and the no. decisions that the managers made about Harry Maguire and leaving him out, Harry Maguire has just been named Player of the Month this this, this month, uh, you know, for, for the Premier League. Um, they, they are, you look at the, the squad, they've overspent on players, players have underperformed. We talk about Sancho, he's not even involved in the squad for whatever reason. The manager's decisions that he's made, the harmony off the field, Anthony hasn't performed. Listen, it's not his fault that the club paid 90 odd million for him, but he's not a 90 odd million pound player. No. Oyland's starting to show what he can do. He has in the Champions League, he hasn't in the Premier League. Bruno Fernandes, body language at times, performance. The, the, the squad, the, the, the starting 11 at Manchester United, you look at it. And as I say, last night was improved. It was much improved, but it didn't have to get much better from what Wayne said was really poor at Newcastle. Paul, what did you make of, of Bruno's penalty talking of him? Because it just seemed that he had the weight of the world on it, on his shoulders and he stepped up. And I mean, again, I'd like you to comment on what you thought about, about the, the kick. I don't like them silly run-ups. I mean, the, no. the, the, straight run-ups, the straight run-ups are hard for a goalkeeper because it's hard to read which way a player is going to go. But credit Robert Sanchez in the goal. He stood up, he stood big, he made himself like a great big star in the middle of the goal. And he said, go on then, beat me. And he did that stupid stuttering run-up. And when he looked up to see which way the goalkeeper had gone, he hadn't. The goalkeeper was still there. So at that point, Bruno has to put it in the corners. And he didn't. Listen, any penalty that goes in, it's, it's a good penalty. And you can't say it was a bad penalty. It was a good save, but it wasn't inside the post. It wasn't a convincing penalty. But by that time, United should have been out of sight. McTominay had a great double chance. Sanchez made a save. Garnacho had another opportunity. But for me, if, if that penalty goes in, we say nothing. But you can pick the bones out because it was a stupid run-up. It was a straight run-up. It was a stuttering run-up. It wasn't hit with conviction. I'd have liked to have seen somebody just grab the ball. Smash the ball. Yeah, you know? no, I totally agree. Always the, the best penalty is always the ones that are hit hard and into the corners, whether it's low into the corner or high into the corner. They're, and hit, then hit the side of the net. They're impossible to save. No keeper saving them. Um the run-ups, rubbish, and there's no power. Um, me and I wouldn't have mind bidding goal for that one. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have saved it still, but um, it was it was terrible from Fernandez. If, you, if you're a Man United fan, would you want him taking penalties? No, you wouldn't. Paul's going to be sending um, sending Wayne some gloves soon for some training sessions. We've spoken about the squad here quite a bit. I think it's worth touching on. You know, we're only a few weeks away now from the January transfer window. Wayne, which positions do you think United really need to strengthen in, in this upcoming window to kind of solidify that push into the top six, the top four, wherever you see them finishing? And their top target is a centre-back. Um, I'm told their top target is Mark Gray of Crystal Palace. He's he's the one they really want. Crystal Palace don't want to sell him and would only accept an offer of around £60 million. From what I understand, Man United value him close to £45 million. So, so that deal is is probably not likely at this stage, but he is a definite top target. They want to sense back. Ferran's got injury issues. He's got um, sort of conditioning issues. Harry Maguire and Johnny Evans, obviously, um, not the future, Man United. And um, I think the only one, probably the only one of the signings from from Ten Hag is Martinez, who's done well. So they definitely want a new centre-back. I mean, I personally think they need a centre-midfielder as well. Casemiro's future's in major doubt. There's interest from Saudi, and he could very well leave in January um, at a massive loss to Man United. But their priority is centre-back. And going further forward, perhaps into the summer, 
centre forward as well, despite 70 million spent on Hoyland. They're also looking at bringing in another striker. Why on earth they didn't bring uh, by Harry Kane? Um, pushed the boat out for that um, is beyond me because um, Kane was interested in going there. And if Man United had paid the 90 million that Tottenham wanted, then he most likely would have gone there. But they are still looking for a striker. And Paul, you were you were obviously at the game last night. You got to see in the flesh Scott McTominay. I mean, a great performance, got a brace. What position do you think he suits best? Because it just seems to be for so long he's played so deep. But actually, he's a bit like, I'd say, like a Thomas Suchek in that he actually suits slightly further forward in that box-to-box eight role. Where do you see his best position for Ten Hag going forwards? I agree. Um, but United play him in that defensive holding midfield role alongside Amrabat. And the, the problems that United had last night was when Cole Palmer, when Raheem Sterling um, got in behind McTominay and Amrabat and at the back four defensive. Amrabat, for me, he hasn't ad- adapted to the pace of the Premier League yet. He still looks slow. He still looks off the pace. And I think he left him out last weekend, but potentially because of that at Newcastle. McTominay, for me, is better deployed further field. We've seen him scoring goals at international level. We've seen him scoring goals at club level. I mean, he's Manchester United's top scorer. I was looking at it this morning. McTominay is Manchester United's top scorer with six. Bruno Fernandes with five, who takes penalties. Hoyland, who they paid £70 million for, has got five. And Casemiro is the next on four. So goal scoring obviously is an issue. But picking up on your point about signings in January, the biggest signings they can do is get the board structure in place. Because are you going to let a manager spend money who has who spent money on Anthony? Has that worked? Not yet. Hoyland? No. Amrabat? No. You look at the players that he's signed, his own players, the amount of money over £500 million that he's been allowed to spend on his own players... With all the unrest off the field, without a sporting director, with a temporary CEO in charge, who is going to actually have the authority to go and sign these players? And is the manager going to be trusted after what's happened on the pitch so far? There's so many questions still to answer. If we now turn our attention to sort of the bottom half of the table to some Premier League manager changes, there's quite a lot of news going on, actually, in terms of potentially some movement. The sack race might really start to open up now. Wayne, you actually wrote a piece yesterday about Steve Cooper's future at Forest. Can you fill us in, please, on the latest news on that? Yeah, I mean, this was before the the five now in terms of um, Cooper expects to be sacked soon by Nottingham Forest. Um, Whispers he's hearing at the club is that they're approaching other managers um, to to replace him. One of those targets is Jolyn Lopetegui, the former Wolves manager, who isn't completely convinced about taking the Forest role, but Cooper has told his inner circle that he expects to be sacked soon, and that was even before yesterday's 5-0 thrashing. It's quite interesting that Marinakis, the the owner, he was, he was there and he was absolutely raging by all accounts, and his reaction in the second half um, told quite the story to kind of observers who were who were watching him um, in the director's box. So I would expect Steve Cooper to leave Nottingham Forest soon, but I would not be surprised if he ends up at another Premier League club and very possibly one in London as well, um, from what I'm hearing. Interestingly, actually talking of Maranakis, Wayne, I saw a photo on Twitter that a fan had actually found Maranakis's um, badge and his his ID to get into the ground in someone's bush outside the Fulham ground. So obviously he must have stormed out in a rage and, <laughs> and thrown it, which was which is quite interesting, really, to to find out. Paul, the one thing I think that is worth mentioning, though, and, and actually, you know, I think huge credit must go to those fans staying not only until the end, but to clap off Steve Cooper. It really seems they have such a tight relationship and actually quite a few Forest fans sound like they actually might want him to stay. I think that's the majority of the Forest fans. I was at Forest game uh, against Everton this weekend and they were poor. 
Um, you know, they, they really struggled against a, an average Everton side, let's say, who stuck to a game plan. Forest have won one in ten. The, the, the thing that kept them in the, the Premier League last year was their home form at the City ground. But the, you talk about the manager, the bond between the manager and the supporters, I've never seen it before. That he's took that, taken that club from the Championship on a budget, what they have, and they've take, he's taken that club into a Premier League. So many clubs in the Championship are, are busted flushes, if you like, ex-Premier League teams who haven't managed to get out again. You look at that Championship, it's full of ex-Premier League teams who have hit the heights but haven't managed to get back there. The Forest fans and Steve Cooper have this unique relationship because he is Mr Nottingham Forest. He gets the club, they get him, and the, they, they will support him whatever whatever he does. The owner um, in, is, is another um, issue. I mean, the problem that they've got now, let's be realistic. Forest came up last year. It was their first season in the Premier League last year. What's success for Forest this year? From an outsider's point of view, staying in the Premier League again because the second season is the hardest one. Yes, I get the amount of money they've spent, but Steve Cooper's had to do that with a new team every single season. Every single season he's bought, he's rebuilt, but he's got all these new players again this year, some of which I suspect he didn't want, but he's been given, and he's done it again with the side that he's got. I mean, they are what are they? They're six points above the bottom four. They're not going to get relegated this year. There's, there's three, four worse than them, but they won't because they've got a squad good enough to do it. But the problem that Steve Cooper has got is with the owners, he's become a victim of his own success. And with success comes expectation. And for me, realistic expectation, stay in the Premier League again. But that, that, you know, that's not how Mar Maranakis looks at it, though. He, he, he's expecting a top 10 finish this season. And his view is they've spent 250 million in the last three transfer windows and, and they should be in the, in the other half of the table, which basically means Steve Cooper's dead man walking. He knows he's a dead, dead man walking. Um, I don't think he's particularly down about it because he knows he has interest from other clubs and I'd very much expect him to be a manager of a different club um, within months if not weeks. Paul when you as a former player when the fans have a really close relationship with a manager how does that affect you knowing they might potentially be sacked is there any feelings of I think I would say of disappointment knowing that actually Steve Cooper could be gone in the next week say? Um, I think the dressing rooms are always split because it's easy for a manager to keep players happy, 11 of them, because he picks them every week. You're never going to have a harmonious 23-man squad. Some people will not like his training methods. Some people will not like him personally. There's always going to be two or three. But I think from from what you hear, listen, I, I, I don't know Steve Cooper, but from what I see, you, you warm to him. He's, he's a likeable guy. He comes across really well. He's honest in his press. And he comes across in, a, in an honest type of way. And from a player's point of view, the 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 only thing you want from a manager is honesty. I've played for so many managers that struggle to be honest with you. A manager's job is very, very difficult. If they're not going to play you, at least be honest with you and tell you why they're not going to play you. Tell you why. Be honest, be open, be honest. A lot of managers aren't honest, but he strikes me as, as one that is. And he's got the club at heart. We know He doesn't set out. He's got no ulterior motives. There's no hidden agendas. And he looks like a manager that I would have liked to have played for. And I can imagine that his dressing room is pretty harmonious. I mean, after the game last night, you saw him put his hands up and he's like, look, this is on me. It's all on me. And still to this point, his players have let him down. I mean, they lost 3-2 against Brighton. They lost 3-2 against West Ham. They lost 1-0 against Everton. They had five put past him against Fulham. And he's still there defending his players. It says a lot about him as a character, really. I mean, if we turn our attention, Wayne, to a club in South London and talk about Crystal Palace. I mean, you wrote a piece. Sounds like Roy Hodgson could be, uh, could be passing way soon with the Eagles. Yeah, I mean, my information is that his um, 
there, there wouldn't be a, a sacking. It'd be very much presented in a different way. But um, it's coming to the end of the line for, for Roy Hodgson and, and Crystal Palace. And there's likely to be a kind of mutual consent arrangement. Um, he's only on a short-term deal anyway that expires at the end of the season after he took over um, the end of last season, kept them up, did really well. And they're still, you know, well clear of relegation themselves right now. Um, but the information I have is that his perhaps his enthusiasm is slightly diminishing um, for Premier League management, and that could see see a change. Um, they're interestingly looking at Steve Cooper as a potential replacement for um, Roy Hodgson, and Cooper is aware of that interest um, through third parties, from what I'm told. So it's you know could be a potential merry-go-round in the next in the next weeks. Um, it's obviously kicked off by Heavenbottom leaving Sheffield United the other day and there could be quite a few changes to come. Now it's getting to that time of year where there's big changes, where clubs start to worry about the relegation battle and um, it's all about to kick off, I think. That went over really surprised last, last season when, when, they, when they stuck with Roy Hudson. I mean, he came in at the end of last season and did a fantastic job. Everybody associates Roy Hudson's teams with being defensive, being hard to mm. beat. Last season, he came in, they were open, they were expansive, they scored goals and they stayed in the Premier League and not only just by the skin of the teeth, but quite comfortably. And under Vieira, they were a really poor watch, one of the poorest teams for me to watch in the Premier League. Hodgson, at the end of last season, completely transformed them into a really good team to watch, scoring a lot of goals. For me, at that point, that was it. That was where you sign off and you say, there's me done, thank you very much. It was great for both parties. I just didn't see what either would get out of elongating his contract into this season. There's no long-term contingency plan. I just didn't see it working. Yeah, I mean, and also he's 76 years old, and it's quite remarkable that he's, you know, in a Premier League dugout at, at that age. It's, you know, testimony to his um, sort of commitment and his enthusiasm for football. I mean, very interesting, a complete side note to this is that he was um, advising Sir Jim Ratcliffe at Nice last season before he took over at Crystal Palace from what I understand and um, he he did recommend Dougie Friedman at that point to Sir Jim Ratcliffe so um, that could very much lead to um, a potential rival at Man United and um, you know there's big issues at Crystal Palace. Roy Hodgson I would suspect will not be manager for for that much longer, and it's unlikely that he would see out that short term contract. If we focus our attention then to the top of the table, I mean, Paul, one thing I think that's definitely worth talking about now is the Premier League title race because I think more than ever in recent years it feels absolutely wide open. What did you make of some of those results last night? We'll start with City's loss at Villa. Predicted it. I saw City at the weekend against Tottenham. And City are conceding far too many goals at the moment, which is uncharacteristic of Pep Guardiola's sides. Conceded four at Chelsea, two against Leipzig, three against Tottenham. And they're guilty of conceding the same goal. It's one straight ball through the middle that undoes them all the time. Going forward, when, when, when they misfire, they, they struggle defensively. Last night, they missed Rodri. And he was suspended with his five yellow cards. Grealish also, five yellow cards. But the biggest miss for me was Doku. When they played against Spurs at the weekend, Doku is an old-fashioned winger. He's an out-and-out winger. He's got pace. He's direct. We, we, we struggle. When we don't struggle, we, we identify attacking wide midfielders sometimes as wingers. Phil Foden, he's not a winger. He's a wide attacking midfielder. Grealish, mm. he's the same. Doku is an old-fashioned winger. When they played against Spurs the first half, they could and should have been four or five up. And that was thanks to him. His directness, his pace, his ability to take players on. 
And that those three players missing for City against Villa, who, listen, 14 wins on the bounce at Villa Park now. Incredible what Unai Emery's doing. City have shown that they've got chinks in the armour. They've shown that they can be got at. And they've gone, you know, in the Premier League, they're conceding goals, which is unusual for them. But they all start the season slowly. This season, they started the season well, and they're having a little blip now. But the Champions League, they haven't been overly convincing. For me, they're still the benchmark. But I think we've got the most open title race we've had for a few years. And I think the, the Premier League race needs City to to be struggling, doesn't it? Otherwise, if, you know, if they're top of the table, then it's almost impossible to see at this stage or a few points clear. It's almost impossible to see anyone catching because they always get better in the new year. And then they go on one of those remarkable runs, 14, 15 straight wins, and they're completely out of sight. So it needs them to struggle just for to make, to make it more captivating. And that's the situation... We're in Arsenal look very, very strong. Liverpool look very strong. Liverpool, I watched, watched their game last night against Sheffield United. They were pretty average, but um, still eked out a really, really convincing or really important win. And they're only two points, two points behind Arsenal. So to have three strong-looking teams who all have the potential to get a lot better and go on long winning runs, that's, that's what the Premier League needs. And I think that'll make it so much more interesting. I think it's absolutely spot on. And I mean, the, the big game that everyone's focusing on now, all eyes turn to December 23rd with Liverpool against Arsenal. That is going to be an absolute thriller. Who knows how that one will under go. The lights, under the lights at Anfield, yeah, that'll be, that'll be absolutely epic. And, um, you know, the atmosphere will be, will be wild. And Arsenal, up until last season, they had a very, they've had a very poor record against Liverpool. I mean, Paul, it looks like Emery could be pushing for top four, but do you think by any chance they could be going for the title? Do you think there's any talk potentially in that dressing room, a bit like that Leicester season, or do you think that is just too far too far for them to reach? Yes, I think if you compare it to the Leicester season, I mean, that was too much of a freak. Too many of the top teams had failings that season, and Leicester and Tottenham were looking to capitalise on it, and that was a real opportunity. This season, OK, Manchester City, they've, they've hit a, a, a bump in the road, if you like, at the moment. But Arsenal have found a way to win games. I mean, they won the Luton Cup the other night, didn't they? I mean, you see the celebrations that they had, but in jokes aside, they've found a way now. They're hard to beat, they're resilient, and they, they get the job done and get over the line. For me, I still think they're a 25-goal a season man away from being real title winners, if you like. I think that would put them over the line. Liverpool surprised a few this year, but they're there and they're, they've got a, a stronger backbone to their side again. You know, when they're not playing well, they're winning games in the same way that Arsenal are doing. There's been talk about Arsenal that they're not playing well, but they, they're, they're this, they're that. But you look at the results of the game. They were comfortably qualified through the Champions League. I, as much as it pains me to say it, in one-off games, I think they're, 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 they're one of the, they've got a real good chance of winning the Champions League, Arsenal. I really think in, in, one, in a one-off game. And as much really? As that, wow. Because of, a, well, we'll a, hold you to that, Paul. Oh, my goodness. got competition. You look at the way that they've progressed. You look at the players they've got. They're relying on players being fit, players who've been available for suspension. But I think the way that the Champions League format is, I think it suits them. Whether they can compete on both fronts for, for the rest of the season is yet to be seen. And listen, it pains me to say it, and it really does. Um, but Liverpool, with the, the, the um, sidetrack of European Thursday, Sunday, Jurgen Klopp moaning again about his early starts, which you can understand. But we really have got a four, five-man, four-team uh, title race. I, I honestly believe it this year. Paul, what do you think then? How how would you see Arsenal's progression changing? Do you think that Declan Rice has really been the pivotal? Was he the man actually, like a bit like Rodri for Manchester City? Is he now the glue that is effectively going to 
pull, as you think, they're going to pull Arsenal, he's going to pull Arsenal over the line. Well, I didn't say think, I said they've got a chance. So I think that's the best chance. Um, but he's been outstanding. I mean, when you look at the money that they've spent on him, the impact that they've had a hundred million pound player, but then you look at other hundred million pound players in the Premier League, you look at Anthony, just short of hundred million, and you look at the impact that Declan Rice has had. If you're going to pay that amount of money for a player, he is alongside Jude Bellingham, the best English midfielder that we've got. I think defensively, offensively, he's adapted his game. Um, and the biggest compliment you can pay him, I've said before, he looks like he's been at Arsenal for five years. I mean, he's he's definitely one of the signings of the summer. That's not even a question. Wayne, to wrap things up, have we talked now, actually, to summarise the Premier League about the new Premier League TV deal agreement that's come in place? Can you summarise, please, what this means for football going forward and actually just the magnitude of this deal? Yeah, I mean, the Premier League have built it as a record deal. I think it's £6.7 billion, But interestingly, that is across a year more than the previous deal. So the previous deal was three years. This is across four years. So you expect it to be more in actual... In terms of um, paying per match, it has gone down. But nonetheless, um, given how the TV rights globally have diminished and no other league globally can hold a candle to the Premier League, I think it's still a really good deal for the Premier League. It's a really good deal for football, elite footballers and elite football's agents because um, they're, they're the ones who are going to cash in. Um, all these managers earning 15, 20 million a year, they're going to cash in. Brilliant deals for them, brilliant deals for... Erling Haaland, future Erling Haaland, who the Premier League clubs are trying trying to learn, keep them out of the hands of the Spanish giants and the Saudi clubs in the future. I think it's a very important deal for the Premier League and very important deal for, for maintaining the league as the dominant one and the most exciting one in the league. Oh, well, I mean, sorry. I mean, the first point that everyone, of course, raised was about the 3pm blackout. The fact those games will not be shown in that time period. Paul, do you think fans actually have the right to feel like disgruntled by that? Or actually, do we need to really protect the football pyramid for the foreseeable future? Listen, it's it's been a, a talking point for years, the 3pm blackout, because you look at every other country, not just in Europe, but around the world. You, you, you're able to view any game you want at any time, the 3pm kickoffs included. But we have that. But... We have the best product in the world, without a shadow of a doubt. That's why we're here sat talking about it. The Premier League, the power of the Premier League, it is the, it's a global product and it's the best product out there. And rightly so, the TV deals uh, for the clubs, for, for the league, and it's it's going to secure the future. The 3pm blackouts is an issue, but I think a lot of people find ways around that. And interestingly, of course, the games last night were on Amazon. I was watching on Amazon Prime and although my stream went down, I had to then watch all the goals going in rather than games I wanted to watch specifically. What do you think that means? You know, the fact that Amazon won't be involved now. Sky have really taken that stronghold, a bit of TNT sports here or there. Do you think actually, in essence, Sky is going to become the dominating the, the dominating broadcaster for, I would say, the next 10 to 20 years, Wayne? What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sky's always been associated with the Premier League since its inception in 1992. And that's hugely important to the whole Sky product in terms of their subscriptions and selling satellite dishes and all their associated products. I think that's absolutely vital for them. And to maintain that link with the Premier League, they've got, I think, four of the five packages and then TNT Sports have got the other one. Amazon weren't interested and Apple weren't interested and zone weren't interested either so it's it is very much going to be a sky-led product so you know they'll have to patch up that relationship with man united won't they, among, <laughs> among other things but um i think it's a it's a, a good deal for them if you look at the magna pain for per match has gone down 
Um, and also they've got all the Sunday matches are going to be, the Sunday 2pms are all going to be live in the future as well. So I think it's actually a strong deal for Sky, but also a brilliant deal for the players. You can see a situation in the next two or three years where we're going to have £500,000 a week footballers, a million pounds a week footballers, uh, Premier League footballers eventually as well. If you include their endorsements and their sponsorships, you've already got players earning £350,000, £400,000 a week, um, earning Ireland, May Salah, throw on the sponsorships on top, on top and then you can play in the Premier League and earn a million pounds a week, which is extraordinary. And, you know, I'd expect that that very much to grow and for players to be able to earn even more in the future. And Paul, will that be an incentive for players in, in leagues abroad, actually, looking at this deal and the value of it? If you were playing, say, in League A or Serie A and you see this deal is coming into place, would you actually be pushing then for a move potentially to the Premier League? You've got to prove that you're good enough first. It just strengthens the product that we've got. I mean, yes, players will want to come to the Premier League. Players do want to come to the Premier League. But the financial insight incentive is always going to be there. Anybody who told you they've moved to the Saudi Pro League for the quality of football and want to, uh, to move and play into a better league is lying. It's financially beneficial. Certain players have different gods, if you like, as to whether it's financial, whether it's trophies, whether it's personal ambition, whatever drives you. The, the underlying current a lot in football is financial. And when we've got the strongest products in the world and we've got the, the ability to back that up and bring the strongest players in the world, look, to, to have the revenue that the Saudi Pro League have got is incredible. But to have something similar and be able to match that in the Premier League and to have the attraction and the draw of the players to, to bring them to the Premier League, not just with the product, but financially as well, it makes the whole product stronger. Wayne, we know going forwards as well that the collective selling TV rights deal after this current agreement is going to be joined together with the Premier League and the EFL. But how concerned are you for the EFL? I mean, I saw Millwall Community Trust Vice Chairman Peter Varney comment and say some of this increase in cash must reach EFL clubs because it looks like the overseas rights deal plus this deal that's in place is going to be worth about £10 billion plus pounds. I mean, the, the big issue, I think, is the, the cartel, the... The, the elite Premier League clubs, they're all doing amazingly well out of it, and most of them are, are foreign-owned, and a lot of them are owned by sort of American investment firms. Whereas the the sort of community clubs lower down the pyramid, they're not getting enough of a share of the hand. I think that's the one massive thing that has to change because they are very much um, interlinked with their communities. They they don't have this massive foreign ownership, and I think. They need much bigger handouts. I think Paul's got a really strong association with Leeds. And Leeds, you know, you've seen, obviously, you've had that couple of years in the Premier League where you've done amazingly well. Now you've gone back down to the to the Championship. Um, you've got also American ownership, but huge reliant upon getting back in the Premier League, Paul, aren't you? I mean, if you don't get back in the Premier League this season, um, it becomes a huge financial issue, doesn't it, for Leeds? Well, we spoke about it earlier on in this programme, didn't we? You look at the amount of the for you know the, the amount of ex Premier League teams that are stuck in the Championship and have been for a long, long time. You get your three years parachute payment if you don't get back up in the first two years. You're struggling, and we look at club ownerships that could potentially be changing hands. Club owners struggle if it's not financed in the right way. If you don't own your stadium, and it becomes a real financial burden because the gap is that big, and the reward to 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 get into the Premier League is huge. But also on the flip side of that. The, the, the punishment for falling out of the Premier League after two seasons could really hurt football clubs. And you look in that championship, honestly, take time to look at that table. There is 10 to 12 clubs in there that you wouldn't think would be out of place in the Premier League and haven't mm. been in recent years. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the last point I think that's really worth touching on is, you know, with all the extra matches being shown, it's all very exciting. And I think fans certainly feel they are being, uh, you know, appreciated and looked after by Sky. But do you think this will mean then that Sky will hike the prices up? And actually in the cost of living crisis with everything going on, is that unfair? Because it already feels with so many different streaming platforms that you have to invest in, it is difficult to afford it, let alone potentially the cost of this going up as well. I think one of the issues that lots of football fans have is they've got to fork out for a Sky subscription and if you want to watch um, the Saturday midday fixture, they've got to get a TNT Sports subscription and also those um, lunch uh, European matches are on TNT Sports and I think they've still got those. And they were also having to have an Amazon Prime subscription to watch those games that just took place last night in this midweek. That they won't have that to watch, need that for football in the future. But I think the the cost of those are huge. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't I don't even know what my subscriptions are. I guess they would be two hundred pound a month, wasn't they? Plus for for Sky and Sky and TNT and a lot of. I mean, I don't just watch football, but a lot of football fans just do, and that's a hell of a lot of money, isn't it? To keep to keep paying, and that only tends to go up. It's not going to go down, and for that, you need. Lots of matches, and that's why they've negotiated these these Sunday two PMs. Um, but I'd expect those subscriptions list to keep going up, up in the future. No doubt about that. That was absolutely excellent. So much gossip and exclusive news across a range of subjects today. Thanks very much to both Wayne Veazey and Paul Robinson for their expert analysis and detail across all the stories. If you have enjoyed this podcast episode, please give it a share on social media wherever you can. And any clips you see on YouTube, make sure to give us a like and a comment, as well as subscribing to the channel. I'm Lewis Pears, and we'll speak to you all on the next show here on the Inside Track. <laughs>